Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, Damar Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest during the Monday night football game between the Bills and the Bengals. This tragedy prompted the cancellation of the game and an outpouring of support for Hamlin from all over the world. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me to discuss this story is John Nekrasov. And John, um, I don't even really know how to get into the pleasantries and stuff in light of the story and just how significant it is. So if it's okay with you, I'd just love to go ahead and just jump right into this. I hope that you're doing well, and it's good to be podcasting again post-Christmas and into the new year, but sad that we're starting off 2023 with, with this story in particular. Very much like returning returning to the air is very much a kind of like a... I guess our reaction is similar to the reaction of people broadcasting during that game and everyone watching during that game, which was, you know, expecting a spectacle of football, expecting a day of exciting sports between two really good teams and being able to talk about it and enjoy it. And then all of a sudden having one of the two scariest sports moments that I've ever seen live happening before my eyes, you know, happening before America's eyes, someone someone's heart literally stopping on the football field is the only thing I've ever seen like it, which people have talked about is Christian Erickson. Um, when his heart stopped randomly, uh, during the euros last year and DeMar Hamlin, you know, just taking a pretty normal looking hit in the middle of a play and then standing up and then collapsing on the field. Like, I don't, I don't think any of us really processed what was going on until we suddenly realized looking at the sidelines and getting replays of him collapsing that this was not just a normal hit like something was terribly wrong and then trainers came rushing out and then you know players were crying on the sidelines and an ambulance came onto the field and it was it was a it was a terrifying moment and I guess just to start off we're glad that at least as of right now he's alive and as far as we know, per his friend Jordan Rooney, um, who talked to ESPN this morning, Wednesday morning, as we're talking, um, he seems to be showing signs of improvement, but is still sedated. So obviously, we're continuing to pray for him. But you know, it, it was a it was a sobering and scary and remarkable moment that we have a. There's a lot of different angles to talk through. Um, it was just it was it was really scary. Genuinely watching it. Yeah, it was. Damar is 24 years old. He's a safety for the Buffalo Bills. And you started to describe it, but basically he he delivers a hit um, that doesn't exactly lead with his head, but he's, he's obviously like jumping into the guy as he hits him. Mm-hmm. Um, and what made this particularly concerning is that he first pops back up to his feet really quickly, you know, like a routine hit and then just rebounds back onto his feet. And then we see the image of him after he's gotten up back onto his feet falling over again um at first you can wonder if that's you know some sort of nausea or dizziness in relation to the hit that he just gave but it reminded me a lot of christian erickson which we did a podcast on and i think a lot of this podcast is going to touch on similar themes be it the priority of sports and how media covers these kind of things and and all of that but um the image of someone you know, in a non-contact setting, just collapsing is obviously very, very concerning and very, very serious. 
the entire Bills team huddled around him. And we learned later on that in that about 15 minute period, CPR was being performed on on a man whose heart had stopped beating, just like uh, Christian Erickson. We've learned subsequently that he was actually resuscitated back to life twice um, mm. early on in this process. An ambulance came onto the field and took Damar Hamlin to a Cincinnati hospital. The pl- players were, went to the locker rooms and subsequently the game was postponed. It was canceled. Um, there is no plan at this moment for a, a, a scheduled makeup for that game as we're getting toward the, the final week of the season. The playoffs are looming. All of this are, are talking points for, for, for people and for us today. As I think about the things that we talked about with Christian Erickson, though, John, um, I, we should start by just, as always, pointing out the priority of sports and entertainment in the mm-hmm. light of someone's health and their life, you know. And I was, I think, honestly, given a little bit of optimism for the world <laughs> and the fact that everyone, almost everyone, seemed to universally recognize this, that this product, the NFL, for as long as this situation can, carries on, doesn't matter. The, the entertainment, mm-hmm. the score, the playoffs, all of that is cast in a very trivial light when we're dealing with a man who, who's fighting for his life and for the medical professionals who are fighting on his behalf for him. And so the first thing we want to do as a podcast is to say that we're praying for Damar and for his family and most importantly for the for the very qualified medical team there in Cincinnati who are who are fighting hard to keep him alive and to help him recover. And we pray that they would have just clear minds and, and guidance and a plan and the ability to execute that plan. And, um, you know, the questions of will DeMar ever play football again, none of those things matter. We want to see a 24-year-old man continue to live his life. And that's the most important thing. So we want to start with that. First and mm-hmm. foremost, John, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to from that perspective. Yeah, I think I think that these moments always show us, you know, we talk about sports kind of being a prism to view humanity through, you know, and I think these, this circumstance helped illustrate that and helped kind of just show, I don't know, I guess the love within the football community that's so clearly present there, you know, immediately fans and players and coaches and journalists put all their differences aside. You know, there were a few outliers, which we may get to later, but in general, across the board, you see on social media and on the ESPN broadcast and players from Patrick Mahomes and JJ Watt to the coaches on the sidelines, you know, immediately saying this game doesn't matter. We'll figure all this out when we need to. Um, but this player's life is the most important thing. You saw, you know, basically every team in the NFL posting, you know, prayers for Damar as everything was happening. Um, you saw the ESPN broadcast crew doing a great job across the board of respecting um, his privacy and not jumping around to speculation and saying dumb stuff, but just allowing the moment to be what it was and maintain a respectful tone as we were just all waiting and hoping for any kind of sign of life and information about how Damar was doing it. I think you're right. I think it did give me hope in a sense, you know, that, that we still 
have all have the wherewithal to kind of come together in that moment and not kind of just banter about petty things in a moment like that. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I have much else to say about, about that in particular. Um, I think the most important thing here obviously is DeMar's life. And we're all kind of waiting for information and hoping that we'll get, like you said, football aside, you know, that he will be able to come back with full function, you know, like we don't really know what state his brain is in right now, potentially. Um, similar to what happened with Erickson, you know, when you lose blood flow, when your heart stops beating, like that can cause brain damage in those circumstances. And we don't really have any clue with how long he's been sedated, kind of what his um, what his medical situation is in full right now. So I, that's one of the big things to to be in prayer for and just kind of hoping, you know, again, football aside, that he'll be able to live a complete life again. Um, I know, I guess, Daryl Stingley um, was someone that was brought up a lot who got paralyzed back in the 70s. And he never, like, ultimately the hit was, like, I think he lived for a good amount of time afterward, but he was completely paralyzed afterwards, and it was a pretty rough health situation for him. So I guess we're we're just hoping that Demar's going to end up being okay. Um, but as of right now, we don't really have any information about that. Yeah, I I was listening back to um, some of our conversation that we had last year about Christian Eriksen in the summer of 2021 during the Euros, and and trying to think about how much of this conversation is going to be a repeat and how much we can we can kind of find a different angle to talk about it. And one of the things that we were very critical of during the Euros was the immediate coverage of the moment. Uh, not mm-hmm. only because the game did resume pretty soon afterward, um, but also the amount of times that the the replay team was showing him collapse over and over and over. Um, there was an element to the camera that felt kind of invasive of a man's privacy mm-hmm. um, in the sense that it was, you know, the camera was often trying to peer into the huddle of, of people. Um, there was, there were, like I said, there were the over and over the replay of, of Erickson falling over. And as you mentioned, I think across the board, um, we could say that ESPN did a much better job um, in this case than, than they did during that, during the Euros uh, last year in terms of respecting Hamlin's privacy and as well as the rest of the players who in that moment are are grieving, wondering if their if their teammate and, and friend is okay. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I thought Joe Buck and Troy Aikman did a good job of not trying to constantly speculate throughout what was going on. You know, they when they had information, they reported on it. They talked to sideline reporters. They threw things back to the anchors when they didn't know anything more. They went to commercial when, you know, there was nothing else to do. And I think that's the right way to handle something like this. There were some moments in when they cut back to the anchors with Adam Schefter and Booger, and I forget the anchor's name. Um, but, you know, they were talking and there were some kind of awkward questions that were going around because you just you don't you don't know what to do. And just like I mean, even to a degree, a few days later, like I think it's it's hard for me to even like find the words to talk about a circumstance like this you know i think it's it is a difficult circumstance that you know sports broadcasters don't sign up for that you know 
that's not like when you go into the booth to talk about Joe Burrow throwing touchdown passes, you're not expecting to end up to end your night talking about a life and death situation, you know, just like those players weren't expecting to walk out and be in that circumstance, you know? Um, so I thought they did a great job overall. Um, one flashpoint that kind of stood out to me in the immediate sort of aftermath of the injury was when Joe Buck basically said that you could see Joe Burrow start to warm up on the sidelines. And Joe Buck said that per information that had been relayed to them, the league had given the players five minutes to basically warm up and start playing again. And per the New York Times, Buck said that that information had come from John Perry, who was ESPN's officiating analyst, who communicates with the NFL League office in New York. Um, the league has now, has since then, kind of tried to deny that that occurred or that they ever passed that information down and said that they never expected to resume play. But I don't know if I... I don't know if I buy that. I think it's, I do think that if the NFL actually did try to make the players in that moment, like with the Euros, resume play, I think that's a disgrace. Because I don't mm -hmm. think that game should have happened in the Euros. And I think from what we understand, Sean McDermott and Zach Taylor, the uh, Bills and Bengals coaches, respectively, basically said, we came together and said, we're not playing this game. Zach Taylor today in his press conference basically said that it was McDermott's call in the end. And he said that he thinks he needs to be in the hospital with Damar. And that's what they did. And they said, we're not playing this. And the players walked off the field. Um, so first of all, kudos. When we're handing out kudos to people, kudos to the coaches for making the right call there. Because it's absolutely... Trying to play a football game after that just happened is insane. But the fact that the league potentially even considered trying to make them play again is egregious. Yeah, this is something where I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised, like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, at how much of a no-brainer this decision was. Mm -hmm. um, right. It, I, I was thinking back to kind of at the end of the season, um, the first COVID season for the NHL, when there were these two teams who had missed a bunch of games, and at the end they had to play like five consecutive games against each other to kind of like get to their minimum contract for TV. And... The NHL decided to not take the game seriously because both teams were eliminated from the playoffs. And so they like changed the rules of the games as kind of like mm. a test to see if they could like if, if these format changes for the league would be, you know, more entertaining and more or more helpful. This kind of game is, is not a situation like that, that you could just throw away no, at the end of the season. These are two teams that are playoff teams, you know, seedings on the line. These are two of the best teams in the league right now. So like this is you know in a week from now in the aftermath of of the season there's going to be some challenges in in restructuring this to make this happen people are talking about the super bowl getting delayed it is very very difficult to delay a super bowl um very very difficult so many things hinge on the date for that game and hotels and tickets all that's been booked all of it has already been booked so um this is going to be a logistical nightmare at some point but I'm, I'm really pleasantly surprised at how that wasn't considered a factor by the coaches and the players in the moment you mentioned that the league wavered a bit they came away making the right decision um, and that's that's good but I was glad that um, I, I could see a world in which the logistical pressure to fit in the games 
could have made this a harder choice than it ended up being. But ultimately, I think you and I are in agreement that the right choice was made. Uh, the, the, oh, the most important priorities were focused on. And there was a universal recognition, like I said at the beginning, that the sport, the entertainment is is so trivial in light of it. So I want to mention one more part of the coverage um, that you and I both made a note of, and that was um, Dan Orlovsky, who uh, was it, it was yesterday in the aftermath mm-hmm. speaking on NFL Live kind of mentioned how a lot of people have been saying thoughts and prayers to DeMar Hamlin. That's kind of something that everyone says during moments of tragedy. And he actually did pray on the air with uh, Mark, with the host and Marcus Spears. Both Marcus and Dan are professing Christians. Um, they've, they've shared their testimonies publicly on, on Twitter and, and things like that. And it was a really, really cool moment to see the idea of thoughts and prayers become something very tangible on a, on a platform as big as ESPN's is. Um, I, I hope, you know, this, the cynic in me was like, oh, I, I wonder if there's going to be a backlash to this or some sort of, you know, punishment or suspension. And all I've seen has been an outpouring of support for what they did um, in that moment and their their care for, for someone who's been part of the league as them. I thought that that was a really cool moment. There were a couple, you know, analysts, sports, TV personality decisions that were maybe a little bit less desirable, and we can get into that as we talk about the reaction. But John, we've talked about the broadcast on the night, we've talked about the coaches and the league officials, but what is the general reaction that you've seen, Ben, from from fans, from, from maybe people of other sports, just um, the reaction in the, in the larger world community? Yeah, I mean, it's just been an absolute outpouring of love and support from literally everywhere um i think the best example of that is you know it, it really from every report from every story that's been written about him before you know it's not like demar was a particularly well-known player before this um but in his community he absolutely was and he was known as an outstanding friend an outstanding guy who had a pretty rough childhood and through football through his school um through hard work you know, managed to get to the NFL and has been dedicated to giving back to both his family and and his community. He started a foundation that's run things like toy drives in his community. And a couple of years ago, he set up a GoFundMe with the goal of raising like twenty five hundred dollars um, for like for toys to help kids in his community. That GoFundMe was rediscovered in the aftermath of everything that happened. And I checked it like about an hour ago, and it's received over six point four million dollars as mm. of you know two days later. By you know basically everyone in the NFL has been sharing this, and it's I don't know it's just been remarkable to see people come together. Like that's going to be such a boost to his community, you know. And it just everything I've seen from his love for his family to his love for the kids, you know, he's pictured at those toy drives and everything. It just seems like he's a remarkable guy. And I don't think that I haven't seen a single negative thing said about him anywhere on social media. You know, there have been some negative things that we can get into in terms of outliers, people who are saying stupid stuff, but there's always like those people stick out so much because it's just been so overwhelmingly the right responses from like the entirety of the planet. It seems like, and I think that's like you said earlier, that's, it's just, it's a remarkable thing. And it reminds us that like, there is still humanity alive in all of us when these moments happen. Yeah. I, I honestly, 
you know, praying that Damar wakes up if if he's not awake now, um, stabilizes that his his brain functions are good. I I'm really excited for when he finds out what has happened with his GoFundMe account mm-hmm. for a cause that he's you know poured a lot of his time and effort into uh, to to receive such a outpouring of support. I I'm genuinely I think that that will be a very very moving thing for him to see, and I I really hope that that he does get to enjoy and, and see what what has been done on his behalf in this moment it's really really exciting Absolutely. that that people have jumped onto that cause a really really good cause and also that people have taken the time to get to know him as a person more um mm-hmm. espn daily did their podcast this morning not about this incident but about the story of damar hamlin as a as a you know as a kid as a college player in his professional career just have really tried to get to know this person and his life and his family, the people that we see who are, you know, there at the hospital supporting him and taking care of him. Um, and all of that, I think, has been appropriate and needed. And I'm, again, I just have the sense of optimism for a, a, a caveat, almost, asterisk, almost universal sense of compassion and support and love for this guy. Yeah, I, it, it kind of reminds me, Ryan Clark on ESPN, he had some comments that sort of really, I, don't know, I guess, summed up the community's reaction both to the dangers of football and the community of football and the value of the players who play. And they were kind of going viral and across Twitter and across op-eds in the aftermath of the couple of days after DeMar's injury. And I don't know, I guess they stuck out to me and, and the story of DeMar and this GoFundMe, I, this, it's just... It's been a reminder about how, to me, sports are always about the humans who play them, the humans who love them, the humans who organize them, you know, and, you know, often we get caught up in these conversations about institutional problems, about Roger Goodell causing issues and about Gianni Infantino saying stupid things about organizing World Cups and, you know, places run by corrupt oligarchs and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, those people aren't the reason sports exist. You know, the sports exist because of the players and because of the fans, because mm-hmm. there's this community of people who ultimately care about this game and care about each other, you know? And I think it's it's kind of a reminder of how, in these moments, I guess they serve as a reminder of how special sports are in these kind of moments of crisis like we've talked about and how our community, you know, which is just such a massive community, not just of individual fan bases, but of people who watch sports and follow sports and play sports in general, you know, I think it's just been moments like this are always a reminder of the, even when it's really scary and dangerous of the human side of sports. And we'll get to the, the jeopardy that these players face in their different sports as well later, which I think is a really important and difficult part of this conversation but i think from just the positive side like you were saying like it it's a reminder of how each and every one of these players no matter how not super well known they may be at any given moment you know each of them has a unique story that has brought them to this point where they get to play the game they love in front of a national tv audience and it's an incredible opportunity and sports is always an incredible opportunity to get to know those people and instead of 
hurling abuse at them online, you know, which is ultimately what Clark's point was. Yeah, it's the reason why you subscribe to Sports Illustrated magazine at 12 years old is because right. you don't just love the game. You want to hear the stories. You want to know the people. The, the That's why long form journalism, podcasts, uh, social media and like having access to players. All of that's just as important as what happens during the games are are the the knowing about the caring for the investing in these lives of people who you see on TV and who in, in some ways you can actually like learn to understand and their stories are powerful and they're important. John, we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about player safety and, and you know, how, if, if at all, this, this particular injury relates to it. Before we do, um, it would, it would be remiss as, as much as I loathe to do it, to move on from the reaction without talking a little bit of the negative. Again, this is the vast, vast minority, but, um, Skip Bayless was widely criticized for a tweet in which, you know, I believe while Hamlin was still on the lying on the field, he was already talking about mm. player uh, the the league schedule and how they were going to redo this game. So, in terms of you know time and sensitivity, um, that was a huge a huge mistake on his part. It caused his TV partner Shannon Sharp to not appear on the show on Tuesday morning. Um, the bosses at Fox asked Skip Bayless to clarify his comments uh, this morning when Shannon did appear on their show, Undisputed. There was a heated exchange right at the beginning that was honestly very uncomfortable to watch. Um, it seems like there's a relationship between two, these two men that has been devolving for a few weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've s- seen a couple of these clips just here in the past couple weeks. So um, that was a huge miss. And something that I was not at all aware of because I live on you know the rational side of the internet but apparently <laughs> there's been a movement among uh, vaccine skeptics to try to pin weird injury fluke accidents since COVID to uh, vaccine symptoms. Um, this is a, and Charlie Kirk gave a tweet that did so in the case of Hamlin. There was later a, a video, kind of a, a mashup of, of injuries that are people players collapsing or, or people collapsing since 2021 that people are alleging is all because of the vaccine. There's been some very good fact checking on Twitter showing that in none of those cases were the person vaccinated or that there was a actual medical reason for it, like f- fatigue or or something else, um, exhaustion or, or another illness, or that the person in question was actually not vaccinated. So again, it's an absurd thing that we even have to talk about. But um, I, I, this was my introduction to this conspiracy theory was seeing Charlie Kirk's mm-hmm. tweet. Um, I hadn't been aware of this in the past. Um, and it's just, again, the, the people who show no compassion for a human being and so quickly try to shift someone's tragedy to fit their own narrative, even their conspiratorial narratives that have no basis in reality is gross. And as much as it is a minority for people who are on Twitter, they still see it. It still trends. It still gets attention. We have to give it attention right now as much as we hate doing it. And um, yeah, so I I wish I could say that this was 100% handled the right way by everyone. But unfortunately, there is a a small minority of people who just seem to refuse to be a decent human being, even when they have no reason to be the contrary. Yeah, no, my so so in response to Charlie Kirk, shame on Charlie Kirk. Um, 
that's about my uh, my take on the circumstance in that specific instance. You know, it you when you have absolutely no information, you have Joe Buck, who you know is commentating on the game and has no information and is just saying we're waiting to find out more. You go on there with no medical knowledge at all about not only Demar but just about the hit in general. Clearly, you're going to go on Twitter and start trying to politicize someone's life being in jeopardy like literally shame on you that's a disgrace um i have nothing else to say about that and that's about their time i think it deserves um regarding skip i think it's a really bad look some people have tried to defend him by saying that other people were immediately were shortly afterward talking about the scheduling too so it wasn't just him and i think in that sense i do think they're right and that he worded his tweet very poorly but he did afterwards say the scheduling is not important. But by even talking about the scheduling while he's on the field, you are giving the league schedule way more importance than it needs. And it's just completely insensitive. I don't think it's obviously it's not wrong to talk about the league scheduling because that is. No, we did it today. You know, we, we literally just did it. Right. And Scott Van Pelt did it, I think, after the game, not, not yeah. after the game, but like after the game broadcast ended. You know, I think it's a normal conversation to have, but it's not normal to have that conversation when someone's life is in jeopardy and someone's literally being administered CPR with an ambulance on the field and you're sitting there tweeting away from your, you know, apartment living room saying, oh, what is the NFL going to do? Like, no one cares. Be quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Be worried about the player's safety first. So. Yeah. and, And then to not, you know delete that tweet or he did he did clarify he said that his boss encouraged him to do so uh he said that you know okay. for someone he tweets a lot but he said that he actually doesn't follow twitter trends and so he didn't even know that he was trending for his tweet um you can believe that or not uh he, he tweets a lot so it doesn't really matter but <laughs> he does tweet a um, lot <laughs> we could do an entire podcast about what's going on on undisputed that show another time that could be an entire podcast we'll leave I feel that like we should do day. a soap opera we should do a soap opera uh tv show podcast at some point that'd be about, your, about yeah these. just about first take and undisputed <laughs> yeah <laughs> that'd be a good podcast actually i we'll have to really do that so, yeah. before we move on from this story when you and i first started talking about this um we were texting the night that it happened mm-hmm. i and and i haven't learned I, we haven't learned a lot more about this in the aftermath but the extent to which this this cardiac arrest tragedy can be tied to the the risks of playing football versus it just being a fluke medical event that we see happen to people in soccer or other sports or non-athletes just going about their day-to-day lives. Um, that's a conversation that is going to need to be had. Um, hopefully, mm-hmm. like some conclusive data or research or, or prognosis from the medical professionals can come out on that subject. It's a subject that I was unclear on in the moment that I'm still unclear on today. Um, You know, he was immediately involved in a collision prior to suffering cardiac arrest. But in the Christian Erickson case, we've seen people suffer cardiac arrest with with no collusion, no contact. He was just jogging, I think, and fell over. So um, Mm -hmm. obviously, whenever there's an injury in a sport and particularly an injury involving the head in football, we immediately need to have a conversation about player safety, the risk of football, the the balancing act of should football exist that we've had to grapple with. Um, and I honestly don't know exactly where in that 
conversation this particular incident fits in. But again, it's a conversation that we should touch on again before we move on from this story. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I I think with this this specific instance, it's like it's an interesting one because the we don't really know what happened with Christian Erickson. There was an underlying heart condition that you know was the cause of what happened with Demar. We don't really have any clue what some doctors seem to be guessing happened as long as he didn't have an underlying condition they seem to be guessing that from what i've read on nbc and the new york times that a very rare and specific thing may have happened where if you're i guess if your chest gets impacted and my understanding in between like heart rhythms basically that it can send your heart into what's called arrhythmia um and it basically stops your heart if it gets like impacted at the exact right moment so it's like it's like a 20 millisecond or something um time frame so it's very rare but um according to nbc they talked to dr mark link who's like a cardiologist at the university of texas and that specific thing happens about they have like records of it happening usually between 15 or 20 times a year across the U.S. in sports. Um, and it'll happen in things like baseball or lacrosse or hockey where something will like hit your heart even through pads at the exact right moment. So doctors think, you know, it's possible that that may have happened to him, that he just it looked like a pretty normal hit, you know, that wasn't like a hit stick kind of thing where someone gets absolutely annihilated and you're like, oh, man, that that looked really bad this seemed like just kind of a standard run of the mill. Obviously football is violent and you know, in most other sports, you're not being thrown to the ground, but in terms of what we see every day, you know, that's a hit that happens hundreds of times a game. And so doctors immediately were kind of thinking like what, what may have happened there. So on the face of it, if that is what happened, it's a kind of a fluky thing that isn't really football related at all. And so that makes kind of the, the football conversation of, safety necessary because football i think is so violent and it's always a good time to kind of revisit where we're at with that but i guess in my mind it's also important to not shoehorn like it can be a conversation that's just always relevant football safety because football is always dangerous but i'm not i'm not at least as of what we know right now i'm not in the place where i'm like this is just yet another sign that football is the most dangerous sport in the world and we need to get rid of it if that makes sense yeah, you mentioned kind of what we saw in the moment and and you're right that it it didn't look it didn't look like a hit that had reason to give me concern. Like right. the the famous examples and I remember recently are are for example the the Vontez perfect hit on Antonio Brown, the Ryan Shazier tackle on Giovanni Bernard that left him partially paralyzed for over a year. Um, we've seen already with two of this year several really really brutal hits where you can immediately you you see it live and you say oh there's something wrong here this wasn't mm-hmm. exactly like that um, and so again the facts are going to come out and you've mentioned the kind of some of the experts preliminary understandings um, it'll be obviously more helpful to hear from the people who are working with Hamlin and are you know working on him and and what they are seeing but regardless of how the facts end up in this case in terms of football's culpability in this incident versus any underlying conditions or 
or um, just the general fluke medical things that do happen to people. The, the narrative of the NFL as an increasingly violent and increasingly dangerous sport is having a ripple effect. It's having mm-hmm. ripple effect in youth sports. It's having a ripple effect with uh, professional athletes. You know, recently, Andrew Luck did his first sit-down interview from since resigning, since retiring from football at a young age, and he mentioned health as the reason why he walked away from the league at a really, really young age for a quarterback. He wasn't even 30 yet. He was at the, mm-hmm. he was like one of the top two quarterbacks in the league, height of his career. We've talked about this in the past. And he walked away from the game. And the number one reason why he cited was risk of injury and his health record that had been riddled with injuries throughout his career. So, the I, I again, we've talked about it before, but the NFL does seem to have a real problem on their hands in terms of their long-term existence. And, and you have some stats on that as well. Yeah, it's the, the NFL is really weird to me um, because looking at this season, I guess football in general is weird to me. Because if you look at the NFL's stats this season, it feels like it's flying so high right now. Like viewership ratings are climbing through the roof. They're setting records constantly right now. Um, it feels like more and more people are talking about the NFL and popular culture than I really remember. Like obviously the NFL has been America's biggest sport for a long time, but it, it's definitely felt like it's trending upward and upward constantly. College football still has a huge profile as well. But at the same time, Quite interestingly, the lower level participation in football is decreasing pretty dramatically. The New York Times did basically a study in 2019 on high school football and nationwide high school football participation among boys dropped over 10% in the decade prior to that. So in that 2009 to 2019 period, high school football participation went down 10%. In a state like Texas, you know, which is historically a high school football powerhouse. You know, football decreased. Soccer participation grew by over 40%. Those are trends that are happening nationwide where, you know, parents are, I think, genuinely concerned about the risks of football for obvious reasons. We've talked about CTE and the numerous other football-related injury risks that come with playing the sport that is entertaining to watch, but for a player is incredibly dangerous. The more we understand how the brain responds to those things, the more hits we see, you know, and the more we realize like maybe we shouldn't take this for granted, you know, that everyone needs to be playing this game. Like I know on my end, like my kids will, will never play tackle football in any context. Like that's just, there's absolutely no way I would let my kid jeopardize their, you know, longevity of life for a game that most likely they'd only play in high school, you know? Um, I think it's... A reckoning is increasingly sort of happening within those ranks, and it's it's backed up by statistics. You know, there was... The National High School Sports-Related Injury Surveillance Study did a big kind of survey of how many players were injured among a pretty big sample size um, in high school sports. And boys are nearly three times more likely to get a head injury in football than in most other major sports like soccer and basketball. And even two times more. Hockey is obviously a very intense contact sport as well, but they're still almost two times as likely to get a head injury in football than in hockey. So that's kind of like some of the stats we're looking at. And with that, you know, that does cause both parents and players to kind of take a second thought. 
like with Andrew Luck, even at the highest level about how much they want to jeopardize their bodies. And I think that's going to be something we see more and more. Yeah, it's a conversation that, you know, football dominates, but hockey, boxing, soccer are also having to grapple with to a lesser extent. Um, Mm -hmm. It's going to be, you know, one of the most worrying things, I think, if you're sitting in the NFL office is, is actually the all of the NFL players who are saying my kids won't won't play football. They won't do what mm-hmm. I'm doing. That's a real one. Um, yeah, the the there will. I think that there will always be some amount of people who are willing to play football, um, mm-hmm. particularly if the the money and the salaries and the financial opportunities continue to be what they are now. But if if that pool of youth college players shrinks, then it's easy to imagine how the college and the professional ranks will also start to shrink as well. And that's a story that's going to pan out over the course of decades. And, um, you know, the CTE studies are still just in their infancy stage because, um, tragically, not enough of those players have passed away yet for their brains to be examined. So, um, but the fact that they even have to do that, they have to wait for them to die, sometimes by suicide or, or tragic means just to see if there even was a problem, mm-hmm. speaks to the fact that there is a huge problem. And uh, we'll continue to to talk about that in the years ahead. Um, we'll continue to be praying for for Demar Hamlin and for his his health and for his family and for the doctors, like we said at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. All the best to him, to his teammates in the Bills organization, and to the wider NFL community, who I'm sure he has a lot of friendships with, and and that that does become a brotherhood of players. And so, yeah, again, like we said, this isn't the way that we wanted to. To start the new year, but it's important that we we do talk about it because it happened and it's serious and it deserves our utmost attention and our continued attention in the weeks ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure at some point we'll have to talk about what the NFL is going to do. I think if, if they actually move a Super Bowl, that could be a, a podcast in and of itself, given how significant that is. But we'll get to that when we get there, John. Before we get out of there, before we get out of here for today, there is one more story that we wanted to talk about um, because this is a story that we've been talking about a lot. Yeah, John has his his head in his hands. We have been following closely the Greg Bearhalter, Gio Reyna story, which I think we both felt pretty confident that this story was over the last time we talked. Mm -hmm. Correct. But we're recording this on Wednesday and (laughs) just a few hours ago we had some news break about this story. So let me break this down again for those who may be new. Um, Giovanni Reyna did not play at the World Cup much at all. This was a subject of irritation for U.S. soccer fans at the time. Lots of skepticism was turned on the coach. And subsequent to the World Cup, the coach went to a business retreat and said in comments that I think he thought were going to be private, but were not private, that Giovanni Reyna's playing time was cut due to behavioral issues and there was team discipline involving the other players and um, this became a situation inside the locker room, but that things seemed to be moving forward. Giorena released a statement saying that he was disappointed that it was made public, but that he too was moving forward. And again, mm-hmm. this is where the story was supposed to end. But no, John, because <laughs> yesterday, um, Greg Bohalter released a statement on Twitter um, and he, he had to release a statement because he was preempted mm-hmm. by a blackmail scheme. Um, he says in the statement that someone came forward to 
U.S. Soccer Federation with potential blackmail about an incident in Greg Berhalter's past that I'll, I'll explain to you right now. Uh, basically, what happened was that when Greg Berhalter was a college student, he was uh, dating a woman who would later become his wife. They were going out together. And in his words, I'll read this. We had been dating for four months when an incident happened between us that would shape the future of our relationship. One night while out drinking at a local bar, Rosalind and I had a heated argument that continued outside. It became physical and I kicked her in the legs. Um, he goes on to explain that he's taken accountability for those actions. He, he talks about his zero excuse policy for, for any sort of physical violence. Um, that his family and her family and friends were aware of it and that their relationship had um, for you know many reasons stopped at that point but that months later um, this woman Rosalind actually contacted Greg again and they went through the situation and they agreed to continue their relationship um, he says here in the statement um, we met and discussed how we had grown and decided to rebuild our relationship Rosalind shared that her family supported this decision, and by working through what had happened, we both realized that our love, trust, and respect for each other was stronger than the incident that occurred five months earlier. They go on to talk about how they've had a great marriage. They just recently celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary and what they've learned from this. Um, he says, thankfully, Rosalind forgave me. And he says that this is a story that they didn't want to share, that they had to share because of this potential blackmail. Well, today, John... And we need to, that's a whole, this is a whole podcast right here. We actually planned to do a segment just on this yesterday. We were going to talk about the statement and the significance of it and the accountability that we see here. But John, about three hours ago, <laughs> a statement came from the Reina camp, from Giovanni Reina's mom and his dad, saying that they were the ones who released the information to U.S. soccer. Uh, Claudia Reina, Gio's father according to ESPN FC, contacted the USS, U.S. Soccer Federation during the World Cup, during all the controversy with Giovanni's playing time, saying that he had information about Greg Verhalter that he would make public, threatening to make it public. And then today, Giovanni's mom, Daniela, released a statement saying that she gave information, this information to the U.S. Soccer Federation after... Greg's comments at that business retreat after the World Cup where he explained the internal discipline that Gio Schuff suffered. It's interesting because Daniela Reyna and Rosalind Bearhalter were teammates and roommates in college. Mm -hmm. So there is good reason to know that she would actually have this information. Uh, most likely, Rosalind would have gone back to their shared living space after this incident. Um, it would make perfect sense that she would have shared with Daniela what happened here? So, that's the story, John. It's how do we even how do most, we start with this? I, I don't even know. It's the most insane piece of TV soap opera drama that I believe I've ever seen in the sports world. Like, I don't know if that's an exaggeration. I'm not sure I've ever. I mean, maybe there's something that's happened before my lifetime that I'm not aware of. But in terms of live updates, things happening as we speak, I cannot remember a more outlandish story like this where you have you have this dramatic instance with a player where all of us are like greg why are you not playing Gio Reyna? what is going on here and then we go to the business retreat comments and we're like okay 
understandable that you didn't let him play, but also why are you saying this? Maybe I'm more on Team Geo. And now I have done a complete 180 where I never want to see Geo Reyna play in the U.S. national team ever again. <laughs> like, yeah. I, am, I, am this, I am this close. I don't even know if I'm this close. Like, I, I, I don't know that I want to see him play again. Like, Kareem Benzema, like, this is such outlandish and insane behavior from, like, the, the Athletic printed um, Daniela Reyna's statement in full. And she basically said... All these people were saying things about Geo after Greg's comments, and I wanted the hate to stop. So I said, I'm releasing this information so it, there's no more hate against him. And I'm like, are you really digging joke. up? Even if that's totally true, even if that was your positive motivation for releasing this information, the difference between a coach disciplining your son for being an idiot... You know, maybe the coach shouldn't have released that information, but your co- your son was an idiot. The difference between the coach releasing that information and you digging up a 30-year, like, old domestic violence thing with your old bestie and Claudio Reyna and Greg Berhalter were also Team USA teammates, great friends throughout their lives. Like, this is not just, like, a soccer thing. This is, like, a personal drama like betrayal thing like can you imagine bringing that back up over like soccer playing time like it's insane to me i didn't like there's so many factors going on in this story but ultimately it paints berhalter for all our disagreements with him about coaching things as clearly a both of the Burhalters as mature people who are willing to work through their problems and are also willing to talk about their problems when publicly, when they're forced to by cringy people. And the people who end up losing in this circumstance are the Reynas, who are clearly pieces of work and are petty and spiteful people. And I don't know, it's it's literally it's literally the peak of American soccer shenanigans and entitlement, and I hate it. Yeah, up until this, I was kind of not on. I wasn't. I was more on the anti-Greg side. Like, yeah, yeah, same. Absolutely. You know, punishing a twenty-year-old kid by not letting him play at the World Cup because of some incidents that you know you could have dealt with, it and also let him play. He obviously like would have helped the team if he had played, and that's most important. Like, I had a lot of criticisms of Greg coming out of this World Cup, um, and sure. I also understand why parents of a player and former and you know friends of the coach would feel maybe even some personal frustration that their child did not get to play at the world cup um i was a parent and one of my friends didn't let my son play during the world cup that would not make me happy but there are two parts of this (laughs) and this the conversation that conversation that we would have had yesterday if this new information hadn't come out is that one this isn't even good blackmail no, because this is a story that is frankly a beautiful story of accountability and forgiveness and growth. <laughs> Entirely um, true. Greg Bearhalter comes out of this statement with a lot more respect in my mind. Um, he yeah. clearly took counseling and accountability in the moment. He made a mistake when he was 18. In many ways, that mistake has transformed his life. Um, and his sensitivity to domestic violence and his commitment to being better. 
Um, and it's very, very commendable of Rosalind, who was clearly under no you know, pressure or um, any sort of external pressure to, to take him back, but decided to, on her own volition, forgive him after seeing the growth and the accountability. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a horrible mistake that there are no excuses for by Greg. And he knows that, right. and we all know that. But the fact that this relationship could grow and and heal is actually quite quite a commendable thing in a society in which people make mistakes and and forgiveness is available and we believe in second chances. Um, it would have been perfectly understandable if she had, you know, never taken him back. It would have been perfectly understandable if she had filed a police report. You know, she those no yeah. one is saying that she, you know, it wouldn't have been wrong for her to not do so. But the fact that she was able to forgive him speaks to her character and the the steps that he took both in the moment and now to be transparent and authentic and vulnerable and willing to listen and willing to grow speaks well of Greg as well. Correct. Now, as far as the Reigners go, <laughs> the only question I have is how, and I, I would imagine that there has to be a lot, but I wonder how much involvement Geo has in all this. Um, that, is, I can, that is the question. It would be really surprising if the parents went behind his back to try to blackmail the coach without his knowledge. Um, and if there ever was a scenario in which he truly didn't know that any of this was happening, then I won't go so far as to say that he should never be on the team um, again under any coach. But if he condoned this or agreed to it or signed off on it, then that should that should just about do it. Um, it should be over for him as a U.S. soccer player. Mm-hmm. The the parents are just this is just horrible. There there really is no excuse for what this behavior is. Bringing up a thirty one year old incident in which you weren't even involved in, but just so happened to be a, a a second or third hand witness to, not even there when it happened, but heard about later. It's just atrocious. Um, I I can't believe that any mature adult would do something like this. Um, well, I think that's the issue here. They're there clearly not mature adults. An I mean, mature family. in terms of immature. age. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're mature as in they're <laughs> old enough to know better. They are old enough to know better. They clearly don't. They clearly don't value their friendship because if they really cared, if if she, as she said, Daniela, in her statement, if she clearly actually cared about Rosalind and understood the gravity of the situation at the time, she would not be bringing this up now after 30 years. Yeah. Bringing this up in relation to your son's soccer playing time is ridiculous. It's a disgrace. I saw a tweet saying, you know, I just can't wait for the day when, if Gio Reyna returns to U.S. practice, that Tyler Adams two-foots him off the field. And, you know, I don't condone it, but if Gio had a part in this, I wouldn't be angry because it's cringe. Yeah, it's cringy and it's it's just immoral. Yeah, no, it's despicable. It, it's despicable yeah. behavior. Like pettiness is can be humorous at times. Um, as a society, we we love gossip and pettiness, and that's the whole you know the whole purpose of reality TV show. But this is just this is just wrong. Like it shows a complete lack of care for people that you claim to be your friends. It shows a lack of insensitivity. I'm sorry, so there's a lack of sensitivity to their feelings and their privacy. And again, if she if she had ever felt like coerced into staying in the relationship or anything like that, that, that would be completely different. But this is how they 
both chose to handle this and to keep it private, to deal with it with family and friends and to grow and for, for anyone to break that, that circle of trust is just not, not a good person. Absolutely. And I think, I think like you going back to your original point, I think it's hilarious that you would take a mark of outstanding character and then try to blackmail someone with it. <laughs> like, yeah. Like you're like, you're like released information. You're like, Oh, they're going to get, they're going to get really mad about this one. And then all of Twitter is like, wait, that's actually pretty chill. Like y'all are, the bear halters are great people. And I'm, I can only imagine the Reina is just fuming as they're scrolling through all of us Twitter. And that's universally just castigating them for being terrible. It is justice delivered by Twitter, which doesn't happen very often, but in this circumstance, it's happening. Yeah, that that kind of ends our analysis of it. Um, just from a factual standpoint, I'll just mention that um, Greg Bearhalter has taken a temporary leave, I guess, mm-hmm. from the team. They have announced a new yep. coach for their February training sessions, and you know, Greg Bearhalter is currently not under contract with the team following the World Cup, but he is not he has not been removed from consideration to continue being the head coach. That decision will be made probably after this investigation that's going to take place. Um, right. There's a there's an extensive investigation of the men's team going on in which I assume that this story will be part of it. And so that's going to take place. And then after that, uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation and Greg are going to sit down to talk about the future. I really hope that this does not disqualify him from being the coach in the future. There may be reasons why he should be disqualified like his substitutions that are completely wrong every single time he makes them during games <laughs> but this should not be part of that decision and um, so so he you know in terms of just what's going to happen next this team is going to temporarily proceed without him and then we will see if he does return or not and what the reasoning is for that at a future date and we'll we'll continue to monitor this. I I guess John, I'll end with this. Knowing this, because this is a story that we've been talking about, like I said, since the World Cup. Right. So does this does does knowing the full context? Do you want to amend any of your previous takes about the story? Um, I guess, I guess, I guess is my question. I am going to amend my takes on the Geo Georena situation. I, I don't think so. Like my overall, my overall takeaway from this story is kind of twofold. One is when we're talking about the human aspect of sports, like we were talking about earlier with Demar. It's a very different circumstance, but the humanization of athletes and coaches is still a, like a principle that applies here. And the principle here, from a human standpoint, is that it sounds like Berhalter is an outstanding human person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that makes mistakes. Um, both from a soccer standpoint and from a personal standpoint. Um, I am by no means, I don't think either of us are a fan of Bearhalter's man management or game management. And I think that's completely okay to say, while also acknowledging that it sounds like he's a pretty good guy, you know? And I think in some of the game management circumstances, Reina aside, I still disagree with a lot of his game decisions, you know. I think the the specific Reina circumstance where we are constantly like, why is he not playing? Maybe Greg 
had already had some of these issues with Reyna previously during qualification and felt like it was kind of a flash circumstance waiting to happen. Do I think that it was necessarily the smartest decision with how well he'd played in qualification to just come into the World Cup and decide not to play him at all? That started this whole circumstance to begin with? I wouldn't have made that decision as a coach, probably. But he did make the decision, and he stuck with it, and the Reynas responded in this way. So I think by the time the World Cup was in action, and clearly Claudio was saying stuff behind his back already during the World Cup, as far as we know, I think it's completely understandable that he didn't really play him. So I think my my view of Bearhalter is I I don't think he's going to continue as the manager, quite honestly, with this. Mm. Not because of this, but just because of the overall vibe that's being left by the circumstance, by the controversy with team selection just overall. I don't necessarily agree with the initial World Cup decision, obviously not knowing everything behind the scenes regarding Reyna, but I think once everything started happening, I think it sounds like he did the best that he could and made the right calls. I think that's my overall take. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fair, I think. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the coaching search ends up coming out with. Um, mm-hmm. I'll be really curious, and we'll, 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 of course, follow the story as it goes along. A story that Definitely. we thought was dead, and somehow has has found new life and rising like the phoenix yeah this is this is not going to be a fun i hope for the reinas for quite a while i hope they're going to live with this for a long time and they should they deserve that yep never cheering for geo again that's my Mm. big thumbs down (laughs) and that's fair (laughs) john i think we'll be with there um it's been a good a good podcast. It's glad to have you back. It's glad to be back as yes, well. Sir. We're here. You know, coming out of the post-Christmas, post-New Year's into 2023. Um, maybe on a lighter week, we'll do a, kind of a, a look back on some of the biggest stories of 2022. There will also mm-hmm. be plenty more of new stuff to come. And, and of course, we will, be, we will be here for all of it. You can follow my coverage of the uh, vote for the Speaker of the House on my Twitter at Chad E. Wiley. <laughs> and you can follow John on Twitter to hear whatever he's interested in these days. And um, you can, of course, follow the podcast as well on Instagram and Twitter and uh, figure out when we're going to be recording next and about what. But but if you are easily triggered by political opinions, I would invite you to not seek me out on Twitter. Yeah, just follow me. I never post political opinions. <laughs> That's true. That's true. John is the safer, the, the, the more, he's the neutral. I, I, I strive to be until I get mad and then I'm not neutral anymore. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's really fair. Um, if you want to hear pro Charlie Kirk opinions, just don't follow either of us. Don't follow either of us. Yep. That's, we're the wrong place. You sh- Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't be listening. Like, yeah, I'm there is a podcast that, like... for you. It's just probably not this one. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note John it is good to be back <laughs> we'll be back next week Much with a podcast yeah on a topic that will determine in the future and until then I hope that you all continue to be well and be safe and we'll talk to you later alright cheers guys <laughs>